Uh, I hope you'll uh, be praying for me this morning. I am a little bit frazzled. The last 10 days or so have been unbelievable. My, uh, as, as I said the last time I was here, or someone said the last time I was here, I was about to turn 40, and my wife, Julie, put together a birthday week. In our, our family, we don't have birthdays. We have birthday weeks, and she put together a birthday week for my 40th birthday, and so we had a pretty amazing time. We went the, on the actual couple of days before my birthday, we went to Atlanta and had some good food and, and then got the call while we were there that my grandmother, who I've been very close to all my life, was going to pass at any time. And I had one of the strangest experiences of my life on my birthday, the night of my birthday, which was last Saturday, not yesterday, but a week from yesterday. And I had this sense that she was going to pass at any moment. And I, was keeping my, I realized I was keeping myself awake to, because I knew if I fell asleep, she was going to pass before I woke up. And I wasn't with her. I mean, I, we were in Atlanta, and she was at home here in Oklahoma. And sure enough, I fell asleep probably 1 or 2 in the morning. I woke up early the next morning to hear my mom calling me to say that she had passed. And it was such like a, an odd kind of confluence of feeling from a kind of high of celebrating. We had this amazing dinner in Atlanta together and a wonderful evening together with my wife celebrating my 40th birthday and then like just kind of immediate transition from that into the, law, the, the most painful loss I've had personally, losing, losing my grandmother. And so we, we drove from Atlanta here, uh, brought our whole family with us. We couldn't, it was too late to buy plane tickets so we had to drive. We drove in, got there Monday night for the wake, had the service Tuesday morning, and left as soon as the service was over. And I drove back to Tennessee because I had to teach a class all day on Wednesday and Thursday for a doctoral program. And then, finished that, got on a plane and flew back here to be here with you this morning. So, as I said, a little, a little frazzled. But all of that detail is not just to say to you, hey, feel sorry for me. Although, please do. I'm all about pity. <laughs> But it is, I think that sets in the right context how I heard this text that I'm going to share with you this morning in the experience of power and powerlessness. So let's look together at our text in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Before we read it, let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Again, God, as always, thank you for opening up this space for us. I pray that you will be with me and with all of us, that we can hear what it is that you're saying to us. We pray this in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen. So this is a text that traditionally has been understood as as Paul's kind of parting words, not long before his martyrdom, to one of the men who is going to succeed him, who's going to take his place in ministry. And there there are all kinds of places here where We've, we, you'll recognize familiar phrasing that we've heard all of our lives in church about this kind of end-of-life reflection. This is Paul, very end of his life, reflecting on this transition that's about to come, that he knows is about to come, for him and for Timothy, his successor. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, and, and by the way, I've, for you know, much of my life, 
I read lines like that, you know, remembering you constantly in prayers night and day, the way I heard church speak in the churches I've grown up in, where people say things like, been praying for you, brother, which is code for, I thought about you once, <laughs> right? We all know what I'm praying for you really means, right? But when I, I, I'm starting to learn as I mature, and I have these kinds of concerns for my children as the people that I love age and start to pass, my grandfather died on Good Friday two years ago. My grandmother, as I just said, passed recently. My father's had cancer. My mother's had cancer. And the more you, you feel the concerns of the world, the more you realize that actually, as you take responsibility, prayer does become ceaseless. You don't have to try to be intentional about it. Like, if you genuinely care about people, about the world, about your responsibility in the world, prayer will become ceaseless. You'll, you'll find yourself praying um, ceaselessly. So I, I don't think it's Paul isn't being churchy. I constantly remember you, he says, in my prayers night and day, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Now, this is a passage we've heard over and over again. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and love and self-discipline. But I, 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 we often take that out of its context. And what is it that Paul is reminding Timothy of? What, why is Timothy crying? I remember your tears, he said. And I, I think it's this. I think Timothy is coming to terms with the fact that he's about to lose Paul. And that that means Timothy is going to be forced into a place of responsibility that he doesn't feel prepared for. And Paul is telling him, yes, you're going to lose me. Don't be afraid. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Yes, you're going to have responsibility you're not prepared for. Don't be afraid. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of love, power, and self-discipline. Verse 8. Verse eight. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel relying on the power of God. So as I shared what these last 10 days or so have been for me, I was reading these texts that I think for the first time in my life I really heard what Paul is saying to Timothy here and how strange it is. Notice the juxtaposition of these two statements. Join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Now what sense does that make? If I'm going to rely on the power, there wouldn't be any suffering. What do you mean, join with you in suffering? No thanks, I have the power of God. Right, I mean, we're in Tulsa, right? We don't need to join with him in suffering. We are people of faith. We are people of the Spirit. I refuse that. No thank you. Rely on the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And again, how strange. If he abolished death, if he brought immortality and life to light through the gospel, then why is there suffering? 
If Jesus has done all that we say Jesus has done, then why does Paul say, join with me in suffering? What is there to suffer? If God is powerful, and in Christ God has acted powerfully to conquer sin and death, why are we suffering? For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason, I suffer as I do. I was appointed, and for this reason, I suffer. I'm in the center of God's will, and precisely for that reason, I suffer. Isn't this good news? You're all wondering now, like, where is this headed? For this reason, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason, I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know the one in whom I have put my trust. I know the one in whom I have put my trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. This is a crucial line. I know him, I trust him, and I'm confident in his power to guard, protect what I've entrusted to him, my own life, my own future, my own purpose, my significance, everything that matters to me, the people I care about, I've entrusted to him, and I trust him, and I trust his power to preserve that, to hold it for me. So, Timothy, hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and you guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So it's experiences like I've been describing to you from my, my own life that make us aware that we need God to be powerful. We need God to be God. We, we find that out. I mean, we know that, but then we find it out in our experiences of power and powerlessness, in our experiences of strength and weakness, in, in what we might call limit experiences, those moments when we come aware that we are out of our depth and we need God to be God. Anybody testify that you, you've had an experience like that? I need God to be God. I need God to be God now. And we come aware of this need, and we need God. We need God to be powerful, and we need God to be powerful absolutely. We need God's power to be absolute. Because if it's not absolute, then that means our existence isn't sheer grace. If God's power is conditioned by anything other than God, then that means my existence might depend upon something other than God. And then it's not sheer grace. Like, for Christians, there's, there's this fundamental belief that there is God and then there's everything else. And those aren't two categories. There's not a category divine in which God is one of the species and another category human or creaturely and we're one of the species. There's just God who has no category and everything else. And all of, those category, all of the categories we know fit into that everything else. God's power is absolute. And it better be because otherwise... Our existence isn't grace. And if our existence isn't grace, then we have no reason to trust God's promises. If God's power is not absolute, then I can't trust anything he promises. This is, this is the problem. And even if I could trust his character, I couldn't trust that he could come through on it. This is what happens in all of our human relationships. Death is the asterisk beside every promise we make. Think about the Book of Common Prayer order for, for wedding, the, the line we all have heard. When we pledge ourselves to our spouse, we say, I will do this, I will do this, until death do us part. Which is this kind of acknowledgement that I'll make promises to you, but there's one thing that can keep me from keeping my promises to you, and that's death. 
Nothing but death can keep me from keeping my promises to you, hopefully. But death certainly can. And death will keep me from keeping my promises to you in some way. But because God is God, even death can't keep God from keeping his promises to us. That the one who promises is this one Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, and therefore from the other side of death, says to us, I will do this for you, so we can trust it. So our existence is sheer grace because God's power is absolute. And we can absolutely trust God's promises because God's power is absolute. And it's good because we need that to be so. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful little book, Four Loves, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it, makes this fundamental distinction, which he's drawing on the distinction I've already been talking about, between God's love and our love. And he says God's love is sheer gift. God's love is, he says, gift love. Our love is need love. We love out of need. God loves out of needlessness. But we need God to be needless. And the gospel is, he is. That God is needless, therefore the need we have for God is in fact going to be met. But here's the bad news and the good news. That neediness in us can go terribly wrong. You know, a lot of churches for a long time, evangelical churches for a long time, would talk about the God-shaped hole. That every person has this natural longing for God. You've heard this language before, right? This this vacuum at the center of their life that only God can feel. And that's true, in a sense. The problem with that, with that way of thinking, though, is it doesn't take into account the ways in which our very need for God can lead us away from God. It can lead us into imagining a God that we think we need instead of accepting the God that actually is. It can lead us into what Scripture calls idolatry, which is the construction of the God we think we need instead of the reception of the God who actually is. That, that's, that's idolatry. And this can go wrong in all kinds of ways. I'm just going to name a couple. One is, it can go wrong in imagining God as absolute power who is over against us, above and beyond us, in a way that makes God unpredictable. God is the threat that looms over all of our life like a shadow. Just a few weeks ago, I was, I was preaching at a church in Michigan, and I was talking about the difference between Sinai and Zion. And in the process, I read the story from, from Exodus about Moses encountering God on Mount Sinai, where, where God hides him in the rock and passes by, and Moses sees the hinder parts of God, whatever that means. Um, I knew when I was 14 what that meant. I don't know now. <laughs> right? I, I've lost touch with that revelation. But there's a place in that text where God says, I, you know, I show mercy to the thousandth generation, but I by no means clear the guilty, and I punish the sins of the father on the children under the second and third generation. And I just read that text. I didn't comment on it at all. After the service was over, there was a woman. She was kind of standing at the back, and I could tell she was undecided about whether or not to approach me, and she was just sobbing. And the, I wasn't sure whether to approach her either. I didn't know exactly what to do. But then the pastor, thank goodness for people who are actually pastoral, like went over and brought her to me and kind of introduced us to each other. He, he had known a little bit about her situation. And she started to share with me about how she had discovered recently her husband's infidelities to her. And in the aftermath of that, of that discovery, all of these things in her life went wrong. I mean, just unbelievable things. Her father lost a job. Her father-in-law had sold his business and the deal fell through. Her son had fallen very, very ill. 
And she said, I noticed in that text, through, through tears, sobbing, she said, I noticed in the text you read today that it says God punishes the sins of the father, punishes the children for the sins of the father. Do you think the reason all of this stuff is going wrong in my life is because of my husband's sin? That's what our need for God can do. Like, here's a woman who's experiencing her powerlessness. She's at the mercy of her husband. She's at the mercy of the world in which people lose jobs for unjust reasons, in which corruption happens in business. But what she's experiencing is the failure of God to come through for her. And what she fears, and some of you in this room have had to have this experience, what she fears is not just that God isn't coming through, but that God is the cause of her misery. That God is the one doing this to her. And that, and that absolutely threatens us. And, and, and I'm sure most of us have had that experience at least some point in our life where it doesn't just feel like God isn't there. It feels like God is oppressively there. But, you know, there's a difference between sensing God's absence and then sensing that God is oppressively present. God, please be absent because you being here is what's causing this pain for me. And then we can, we can go wrong in another way. We can, that, and that is a kind of idolatry, the, the, the notion of a God who just wants to consume us for his own pleasure. Think about the, how many idols we read about in Scripture who demand people to give up their own children, to throw their children into the fire. Right? There are times in which we imagine God is not that different from Moloch, right? that God just wants what he wants from us, and he's not concerned about our happiness or our well-being. He's, just, he's God, and who are we to question? But it can go wrong in another way. It can go wrong in the ways in which we imagine God's power is at our disposal. That God is just the resource to make sure I get my best life now. They, years ago, I heard a, a TV evangelist. It was some kind of conference, and he was speaking, and suddenly he stopped and looked. It was very jolting. He looked at the camera, and he said, and I just want to say, evangelicals have the best sex. And it was just as startling for me then as it is for you now. because it was completely out of the stream of what he was saying. But it, it, it kind of disturbed me. And then just a few weeks after that, there's this huge scandal around this man. Right? And of course, a lot of people made the connection between the two. But, but I think what, what underlies that notion is this idea that, you know what? God wants you to be happy. God wants you to live this prosperous life. God wants you to be enriched. Therefore, if you just learn the right techniques... If you just learn the right prayers to pray, the right scriptures to confess, then anytime you're experiencing powerlessness, anytime you're in the midst of one of those limit experiences, just call on God and God will come through. Right? God always comes through. And I've heard people testify like that again and again. You know what? God has never let me down. God has never failed me. Really? Really? Is that really your experience? Because what that sounds like to me is I've really not had anything go wrong in my life. And there's a difference between saying, there's nothing going wrong in my life, at least nothing I'm too upset about, and God has always come through for me. I remember when I was, when I was very young, couldn't have been more than 10, we had a missionary come through who was a missionary from Haiti. This was one of the most formative experiences of my life. One of the few times that I heard a sermon as a kid that was positively formative for me. Now, I have this curse of I can't forget anything I've heard. And most of what happens to me works against me. But this is one that worked for me. So he, he read this text. There's a text in Psalm that says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. You heard this passage before? And he, this missionary from Haiti took that as his text. And then through tears, he said to us, 
Apparently, this psalmist had never been where I've been. Because I have seen the righteous forsaken. I have seen their seed begging bread. And I think that there's a way in which we, if we're going to be truthful about our experience and the experience of others in the world, in which we have to say, there are times in which, quote-unquote, God does not come through. Now, we trust that God is God, but we trust it. We don't see it. We walk by faith and by the confession that God is good in spite of what we're experiencing. We don't see it in ways that make it undeniable. And there, it is, there is an idolatrous instinct that comes through and works through us at times that makes us want to say, if we really knew how to lay hold of God, our life would be what we'd want it to be. That if I just knew the right techniques of fasting and prayer and scripture memorization and witness and worship, if I just knew the right way to live, then I could get the outcome I want. But read the book of Job. There is no straight line between the faithfulness of your life and the outcome of that faithfulness. There are, read the Psalms. Over and over and over in the Psalms, there is, don't look at the prosperity of the wicked and be jealous. They're going to prosper. Their wickedness is not what's leading to their prosperity, and your righteousness is not what's leading to your sorrow and your loss. There's just this kind of asymmetry, this brokenness between what actually happens to you and what God is doing in your life. And if you hear nothing else I'm saying this morning, hear this. Until the end, until the very end when Christ appears and we enter into the last judgment and into the vision of God, there will always be a difference between what is happening and what God is doing. There is what's happening to you, good or bad, and there's what God is doing. And until the end, those things are never clearly identifiable. For every time we get the story of the three Hebrew children, you know, throw us in the fire, even if God does not rescue us, he's able to, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. Well, every time, for every time that there is someone who's rescued in that moment, there are tens of thousands of people who are not rescued. I mean, for every miracle story you have, the scandal of the miracle is, for every miracle you have, it's everybody else doesn't get the miracle. I remember years ago in Bible college, we had a bishop come through, and as would often happen in our, our tradition, the church leaders were suspicious of education. So even when they came to a place of education, like university or Bible school, they would take shots at it. So he was preaching his sermon in chapel, and he says, now I know you've got homiletics classes and hermeneutics classes and systematic theology classes, but I just want you to know what you really need is the anointing and the power of God. Because when you pull someone out of a wheelchair, there are no theological discussions to be had. Really? Really? Because it would seem to me that's where they would start. Like, why is this person brought out of a wheelchair and these other 75 people not? Why did this person come out of a wheelchair and then die of a brain tumor two weeks later? Why did they come out of a wheelchair and die in a car wreck a month later? Why did they come out of a wheelchair, but they still are terrible people? Why do we find out a week after this evangelist comes through and brings them out of a wheelchair that that evangelist is in all kinds of sin? Right? The, the questions just start then. The questions just start then. So what we have to hold, and this is difficult to hold, that there's this way in which there's whatever's happening to us that we like or we don't like, and then we trust that in the midst of whatever's happening to us, God is at work. And that that God who's at work is almighty. That God is all-powerful. But that that power doesn't work the way that I want it to. And this is what we learn when we look to Jesus. God is all-powerful. But God's power just doesn't work like we think it should. As I pointed out in the text we read this morning, Join with me in suffering for the gospel's sake 
relying on the power of God. And everything in me wants to say, all right, hold on. What do we mean by power then? Because the way I've thought of power and the way you think of power is as the ability to overcome resistances, the ability to get done what you want done. That's what power is. Power is the capability to accomplish what you want to accomplish when you want to accomplish it. And if God is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants. And if he can do whatever he wants, then why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? If he is against sin and against death, then why is there sin and death? If he is not malevolent, malicious, capricious, then why is there suffering at all? This is the classic problem of evil. So we have to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of this. And what do we see about the power of God in the life of Jesus? Let me have you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Two texts where Paul works out what, what we, how we are to think and feel about power and powerlessness as believers, keeping our eyes on Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message about the cross is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. How can that be? Because you know what's happening in the cross, right? God is completely at our mercy. God leaves God hanging. And that's the power of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. God leaves God hanging. That is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation, and that's something I've perfected, preaching is foolishness, and everyone said amen, through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek desire, Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's weakness. Now, there's something we don't consider very often. What does that mean? If God is the all-powerful one, in what way is he weak? How can the one who is all-powerful, who does not just have power, but is power itself, how can that one be weak? But this is what's revealed in Jesus Christ. That God's power is as much unlike our power as it is our powerlessness. That we learn nothing about God's power from our experience of power. Or from our experience of weakness. We learn about God's power only from contemplation on the experiences of Jesus. Now hear me. We all have experiences of power, 
and powerlessness. And both can be absolutely terrifying. I know for me, the experience of power that comes in the realization of my responsibility to my wife and to my kids is absolutely terrifying at times. There are moments in which, it's not all the time, but there are moments in which I come aware of the fact that I am responsible for these people. And that scares the ever-living life out of me. Because I'm enough acquainted with myself to know I ought not be trusted with that responsibility. <laughs> and, then, and then I have experiences of, of weakness. Standing by my grandmother's casket the other day. And this moment of like bizarre disorientation. Realizing, I mean, that's her body. She's dead. And yet it, like I, I'm still expecting any moment for her to wake up. And I know she isn't going to, but I, I can't come to terms. Well, like that's, I don't know how to deal with death, and I don't know how to deal with the responsibilities that I have. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. But God's power is like neither of those, neither my power nor my powerlessness. I learn nothing about God from my experiences. I have to trust Jesus' experiences. This is what makes us people of faith. I don't believe in God because of what's happened to me. I don't believe in God because of what hasn't happened to me. I won't lose belief in God because of what happens to me. I believe in God because of what's happened to Jesus. And I trust his experience of God, not my own. The testimony we should give is not God, been, God has been good to me. It should be, I know God is good to me because I see Jesus. And I know that when everything is said and done, what's happened to him is going to happen to me and happen to everyone else. But we don't see that yet. So we look to Jesus the one who initiates and finishes our faith. And in whatever we're experiencing, whether we are being exalted or debased, whether we are living in strength or weakness, whether we are prospering and we are in health, or we are suffering or we, and we are in poverty, we say, God is good because I know what he's done in Jesus. I know the one in whom I have believed, and I trust him and his power to preserve me until the end. But it's not my experience that I trust. And I can't trust my experience. And then we also learn that I can, because God's power is both radically different from my power and my powerlessness, I really only come to begin to understand God's power when I acknowledge my own weakness. When I acknowledge my own weakness. And that's what Paul means here by the weakness of God. St. Augustine said this. I love, this is one of my favorite lines. It's, his, it's from, favorite lines from Augustine. It's from his commentary on the Gospel of John. And he's talking about the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And remember the text says, Jesus was tired and he sat down at the well and asked for a drink. And so Augustine says, what is this Jesus was tired? He's God. What do you mean he's tired? This is what he says. The power of Christ created you. The weakness of Christ recreated you. Christ's power caused what did not exist to come into being. Christ's weakness saved existing things from destruction. In his power, he fashioned us. In his weakness, he sought us out. That God who is all-powerful could not reveal that power to us without us co-opting it or radically misunderstanding it without becoming weak to the point of death for us and we will never learn God's power until in our weakness we accept God's weakness and power. 
How do we come to share in that power that I said we absolutely need? We need God's power to be absolute. That he calls us into being out of sheer gift, and he saves us from the other side of death so we know we can trust his promises. But the only way that's ever going to get into the bottoms of our souls, the only way that truth is ever going to be tattooed on who we are in our depths is if we acknowledge our weakness and accept his weakness for us. Because here's the hard, difficult truth that Paul is putting to Timothy. God's power sustains us when we wish it would deliver us. And it delivers us when we wish it would sustain us. God's power sustains us in moments that we don't want to go on. And then it moves us out of moments we wish would last. This is what happens in our other text, and I'm almost done. 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, blessed be he forever, knows that I do not lie. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, you've probably heard this before, but it's a detail that's worth mentioning again. There is, in Roman military tradition, a laurel given to the first soldier over a wall into a city that they're taking. Paul here is inverting that and saying, I am such a coward that I should get the award for the first person out of the city. I'm the absolute inverse of that heroic soldier who's the first one into the city. I'm boasting in my weakness, he says. It is necessary to boast, chapter 12, verse 1. Nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. If I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Elated about what? About what God was doing in him. Because it's precisely the work of God in your life that is the source of your temptation. It's your strengths and your intimacy with God that open you to pride. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said, and we love to quote this, and we quote this like it's a hallmark line. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. But no, this is not a hallmark line. This is not comforting news. It's not only comfort if you let, you let yourself be discomforted first. Do you hear what God is saying? I will not deliver you from your weakness. I am going to sustain you in your suffering. Because only in that position of sustained suffering is my power revealed in you. God's power is revealed, Paul says, not in delivering me from this, but in sustaining me in it. I don't know what to do with that. That is, don't send me that Hallmark card. 
If this weren't in Scripture, I wouldn't take it from you. It's not comforting news. If it is comforting, again, that comfort lies on the far side of a lot of cussing at God and restless nights. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The key, I think, here is what Paul says about the power of God dwelling in us. I think what I want, well, no, no, no. I know what I want is the power of God that doesn't dwell on me, but acts in my life when I need it to be act, when I need it to act. I want to go through life and be able to say, God, you see that obstacle right there? Can you move that for me? I want to, I want to, I want to have to deal with it. That's what I want. What he wants for me, apparently, is not for the power to act in my life, but for the power to dwell in me. And that power can dwell in me only, for now, only in the midst of my suffering. Only in the midst of the weakness that he sustains. I'm almost done, like three minutes. What are we to do with this? What are we to make of this? Just a couple of applications. One is, I was reading Bonna for this week, and there's a passage, I shared this with Jonathan last night, uh, there's a passage in his letters and papers from prison where he's writing to his best friend and his fiance about the fact that he's been separated from them for, for about 90 days at this point, and he realizes this is, this is not going to be over anytime soon. It's the first moment in which Bonifer realizes, I'm probably never going to see my family again outside of this prison. I'm not going to end up married. He's just starting to realize that. And in the midst of that, he writes this to his fiancée and his best friend, a shared letter. There is nothing that can replace the absence of someone dear to us, and one should not even attempt to do so. One must simply hold out and endure it. At first, that sounds very hard, but at the same time, it is also a great comfort. For the, to the extent the emptiness truly remains unfilled, one remains connected to the other person through it. It is wrong to say that God fills the emptiness. God in no way fills it, but much more leaves it unfilled and thus helps us to preserve, even in pain, the authentic relationship. Do you hear what he's saying? You're going to suffer loss. And God's power is not the power that wipes away all of the loss. God's power, the power that we know now until the end, is a power that sustains you in the loss so that you can feel the loss rightly. This is where the gospel is hard to hear. In the end, when everything is said and done, God's power is going to prove to be stronger than all of God's enemies. Death and sin and evil and injustice are going to be defeated. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. But for now... He gives us tears. And to be people of faith is to be able to let the power of God dwell in us in the midst of our weakness. To say, God, I don't want to be delivered if that deliverance is going to destroy me. And I'm going to end with this word from Aquinas. 
you know I can't preach a sermon without quoting Thomas Aquinas. Like all Pentecostal preachers, I love medieval theologians. <laughs> Aquinas' comment on this passage is, I hardly go a week without being deeply moved by it. He's commenting on this passage we just read, and this is what he says. Every wise physician knows you have to be willing to use a lesser disease to combat the greater. And God does that with us. And then he says, God will allow even mortal sin to remain in your life if it can keep you from pride. And this is the word that I feel the Lord gave for me, for you. God will not let you be proud. Because when you are proud, you cannot know him and you cannot receive his love. And there is nothing God will not sustain you in to keep you from pride. There's nothing, no matter how terrifying, that God's power can't sustain you in and won't sustain you in in order to keep you from being elated. And if you will think about that first in our culture and society right now, the pain that we're experiencing as a people, we're asking God to fix a problem he's not going to fix. There is no revival coming that's going to reconcile the races in a couple of weeks. There's no revival coming that's going to turn this diseased culture on its head and bring it to health. There's, there's no revival coming. God is going to sustain us in the midst of this until we realize there is no room for boasting here. We have been proud of things we should not have been proud of as a people, and until we repent of that pride and own our weakness and meet God's weakness with our own weakness, we will never see the power of God the way we say we want to. And then, of your life. God is a good physician. And he will not let pride destroy you. So whatever is going on in your life, know that the power of God dwells in you in the midst of that weakness because it is at war with your ego. It is at war with your self-importance and your self-understanding. Because if God can save you from that, then God can save you from anything. Let me pray for you, and then Jonathan's going to come. God, help us to hear what you're saying. That, as hard as it is, and it is hard to hear, we trust you are good. And here we are on the operating table, panicking just a little bit, but trusting you. Cut away from us every last vestige of pride. Let us be humble as Christ is humble, because that is our salvation. That's our salvation personally. That's our salvation corporately. That's the salvation for our nation, our people, the world. Let your will be done, and not our will. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.